Our call to worship comes from Psalm chapter 16, beginning in verse 8. says this, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to join me in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 this morning, Pastor Mark tends to tell you the page number in the Black Bible. I didn't look it up. I'm guessing page 2, 3, something like that. So uh, you should be able to find it if you just start at the beginning and start fanning a couple pages. It'll be there. Look for the big number 4. Genesis chapter 4, please, this morning. Well, we are continuing our study in Genesis. We are looking now at, uh, or started last week, looking at the life of Cain. Uh, Post-sin in chapter 3, how does that start working its way uh, through the human uh, existence? And so we see Cain and Abel being the first two children uh, of Adam and Eve. And uh, one was faithful and one uh, rebellious, and the faithful was murdered by the rebellious, right? And so as we are looking at the text and we are thinking through uh, to the future, go ahead and pull up that title slide, Matt, if you'd be so kind. Um, we're going to look at uh, a new hope, all right, a new hope. Now, I'm stealing that title from Star Wars for any of you that are Star Wars people, all right, uh, but what's taking place is, is Eve has had um, Abel, and we see this, this godly man working his way through life, and then it seems like he's going to be the hope of mankind and not so much Abel, right? And then, or excuse me, not, uh, what did I just say? Abel is going to be the, the hope, right, that leads us somewhere, and then Cain comes along and murders him. All right, and so uh, what are we to do? We, we, we've lost hope here, and so God still has a plan. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you're thinking that, that life, life is hopeless. You're not sure what's, what's in front of you or what's going to be the future, but it certainly looks hopeless. Uh, let me tell you right here as we get started, life is not hopeless because uh, God is still reigning supreme. Amen. Jesus is not dead. Amen? There is hope. Now, as I was a younger man about nine years ago, maybe ten years ago, you chuckle because you're like, oh, that's nothing. right? I was starting to wonder if there was hope for me. More specifically for... Right? So as I think back how I met my wife, men, you start thinking about how you met your wife, and then wives, you're filling in the, the details with the truth, right, and how that all worked out. I want us to consider this morning the very first verse that we're looking at. Chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Cain knew his wife. This means that Cain got married. Do you remember last week 
what did Cain do? Murdered his brother, right? And got sentenced to a life of wandering. And he got marked by God, right? Somehow Cain found someone to marry him. The question, did he tell her he had murdered his brother? Because when Julie and I were courting and talking, right, things like that come up. <laughs> or should, right? Ladies, hopefully, okay, ladies that aren't married, write this down. Did you murder your brother? Okay, that might be a question to ask. I don't know. But surely this came out at some point. If he didn't confess it, maybe she's looking at him. All right, ladies, you look at this guy, and he's attractive to you, right? But that mark that's on him would probably be a, a source of conversation. Yeah? So, so how'd you get that scar? Right? Those things come out. And hopefully, he shared the truth of, of the matter here. But to be real, in the time of the world and creation, Cain married his sister, okay? There, there, there wasn't a big pool at this point in time outside of his own family, right? And, and that was okay in that day. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 9, we start seeing where this is a, a prohibited behavior, okay? And so we are no longer uh, allowed to or able to marry our sisters, to which everybody's probably saying amen at this point in time, right? right? We love our siblings, but we don't want to marry them. Part of the leaving and cleaving for mom and dad is kind of open. We can leave in, away from the, the siblings, too, and create our own family. But what we see here as this uh, text continues, go ahead and click it. This ain't working. As the text continues, we see uh, three things from Cain and then one thing from God at the end. The first part is Cain's citizenship as we are reading through the text. Follow along with me, please. Verse 17, chapter 4. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered uh, Mahujiel, and Mahujiel fathered Methushiel, and Methushiel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ida, and the name of the other, Zillah. So Cain's history is highly compressed, all right? We are just getting started with the genealogy aspect, and, and I kind of feel bad for Pastor Mark next week getting into chapter 5, because then we get genealogy stuff, right? And as a pastor, you look at that and you're like, okay, how's that going to preach, right? Because I'm just going to stand here and tell you this person begot this person begot this person and so on, and you, your eyes glaze over as they kind of are right now, Right? Here we get a, a genealogy of sorts, just very compartmentalized from Cain. His citizenship wasn't in heaven, as we learn in Philippians chapter 3. Nor did he have any hope to reach the heavenly city. Remember last week in, in the passage that was there, right? He turned away from God. He turned from the face of God and started going his own way, right? In shame, he did this. Now, Cain is building uh, a city. Or let me put it this way. Now, Cain's building of a city at the time of Enoch's birth was a defiant, in-your-face violation of God's uh, revealed will for himself, wasn't it? 
We see back in verse 12 of chapter 4. God says this as he's dishing out his punishment. You shall be a fugitive and a what? Wanderer on the earth. Nomadic. Right? You don't get to settle down. So what we see here is that Cain's attitude, Cain's behavior has not changed one bit from the man who is jealous and doing things at his own tempo, even coming to God with sacrifice at his own tempo, at his own time, his own choosing. And here, even in the face of this judgment that you are to be a wanderer, he decides, I'm going to set up camp right here. And I'm going to start to build a city. I'm going to build my own civilization. The city's name, Enoch, which means dedicated. This was Cain's attempt to perpetuate the name of his son. In Psalm 49, 11, the psalmist wrote it this way, Their graves are their homes forever. Their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. As it was, Cain's decision to settle down and establish his own line of descendants indicates that he was determined to go his own way, rejecting the word of God entirely. Don Atkinson says this of Cain, Cain is not beginning again. In his mind, he is beginning. God's creation is seen as nothing, God did nothing, and in no case did he finish anything. Now a start is made, and it is no longer God beginning, but man. And thus Cain, with everything he does, widens the gap between himself and God. Every choice that he is making, every decision that he is now making, he is is just serving to, to put a bigger wedge between him and God. I've used the analogy before, ego, E-G-O, edging God out of your life. Every decision, every step, you continue to take one step further and further from God until eventually, and we'll see in about seven generations here of Cain's life, is incredibly dark and incredibly void of God. As As the civilization advances... Here it's depicted as one of prosperity. Well, that doesn't seem right. Cain is not a man of God, and yet as we continue in the text, we're going to see a civilization of prosperity? But let's note that as civilization is advancing, it does so in the midst of depravity and decay. You see, rebellion against God and his word is also advancing here. So this citizenship that that we see Cain have, he also begins developing his own civilization. He's not going to find citizenship in heaven, so he's going to create his own city where he can have and find his identity and citizenship. And then have his own lineage, his own civilization to come out of that. Because after all, what Cain thinks and wants is better than what God thinks and wants. That statement right there should step on our toes. Because each and every time we choose to do our own thing, what we want, that is beyond what God says and God wants, 
is us finding our citizenship here and now and our civilization being far more important than God's. I hope you wore your steel-toed boots today because what God has to say hurt my toes this week and I'm guessing it might hurt yours a little bit too. Verses 20 through 22, we see more of Cain's civilization as it unfolds. Ida bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Now, this seems to be something that happens a lot in the 21st century, which is kind of weird and silly, but hey, if this is you, sorry, I didn't mean to be offensive. All right, But my brother and his wife, they, they named their children, and they all start with L. Logan, Lydia, Elena. I don't know if it's easier to remember if they all start with the same letter, right? Well, it started before that because you got J-Ball, Jew-Ball, Two-Ball. Apparently, they like sports because they put a ball in everybody's name. <laughs> I joke. But notice two ball. They added something. We're going to name you after your, how many greats is that? Great-great-grandfather? That's not a good thing here. And we'll see that in a second. The people in the city of Enoch had varied occupations. Before, you, you had a list of, of uh, Mahujiel, Methushiel, uh, Irad. You, you got all those, but you didn't know anything else about them except their existence, right? And here we get a little bit more information. We see some occupation. We see what they did and how they contributed to this civilization. Some, uh, some followed Jabal and took care of livestock. Others learned from Jubal and devoted themselves to the making and playing of musical instruments. The followers of Tubal Cain were metal workers, which in the study of this suggests that there was manufacturing of farm implements, building tools, personal weapons. Cain lived in a society that was rich in culture as well as in industry and food production. So here's a man who was destined by God to always be wandering, right? And the ground was never going to produce anything for him anymore. He was a farmer. But in spite of God's judgment, he essentially says, well, I don't need you. I, I can still manage and starts this civilization. In the city of Enoch, they had everything. So apparently God's judgment doesn't mean a whole lot. Go ahead, judge me. I'll still have, right? Look at our, our, our own country today. To some degree, you'd look around and, and think that we're really prospering. We have a lot of stuff, don't we? We have access to various things. Our health care is better than it was decades ago, right? Some of the surgical things that can happen nowadays is just mind-blowing, where once you would have these huge scars to repair something, there's just this itty-bitty little dot where, where that little uh, scope thing went and they repaired it all in turn. It's crazy. You'd think we have everything. 
Enoch thought they had everything, but they were lacking something. Or should I say someone? Incredibly important. Yes, God. You see, culture, whether it's used or abused, offers no redemption, Kinder says. Think of the things that we have. We can either use what we have, our gifts, our talents, our stuff, for the glory of God, or for the praise and worship and glory of self and others and worldly things, right? I've said this years ago. You see this uh, instrument right here? What's that? A piano. We have it on our stage in a church, a house of worship. You want to know the history of a piano? These used to be in the saloons. And it was seen as something other than worship of God. And here we have it on our stage. Dare I talk about that? (laughs) Drums, pianos, keyboards, guitars, the... These are are fine in and of themselves. It's what we do with them that matters. Are we using it for God's glory? Are we abusing it for our own interests? No combination of, of agricultural abundance, no arts, no technology can save society. I mean, it's awesome to see the newest, latest, and greatest gadgets and things that, that can save us time and energy and stuff. I mean, your smartphone, you know, just makes dumb people, is what I like to say, right? Because I don't even remember my own phone number half the time anymore, or my wife's or any of yours, because I just scroll through. Dean Bell, click, and I call Dean Bell. I have no idea what your phone number is, man, right? Should a pay phone make a, a miraculous comeback? I don't know what to do. Because I have to start pushing buttons and hope I have a quarter, right? Something like that. What does God say of this world? Ladies, in your ladies' Bible study, I heard you're in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Or as the New King James puts it, uh, and the lusts of this world are passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That tells us something about our priorities and the things and talents that we have. There needs to be a true focal point for that. There needs to be a motivation for that. And that place of motivation and importance and worthship is in the person of who? Jesus Christ. God himself is solely the one who deserves our praise and our worship and our glory. What we have is from God. We need to recognize that. We need to appreciate it and place glory where glory is due. Now, I'm a sports fan. I like to watch sports. I love watching football. And as I'm watching some of these sports, I I tend to like one team and sometimes despise the other. Y'all understand, right? My father-in-law was here a couple weeks ago preaching. He was a Buckeye, and I heard the happen when he came up and and said, Go Buckeyes, or I-H-I-O, and we all said, Go home, right? Something like that. But as I'm watching and and, uh, this sport unfold, and the team I don't like, and the quarterback I don't like, because he plays for that other team, is doing good uh, or doing really bad, and then they come back and win the game somehow. You've seen interviews afterwards. 
right? This guy takes off his helmet, and I'm just like, ugh, really? Couldn't my team have won? And then here comes the rebuke from the Lord. Because he gets up there, and this, this lady that's interviewing him says all these nice things. How were how you able to do this? Tell us what was going through your head as you were leading the charge and getting your team back in to come back from this deficit. And da, 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 da. How did you do this? What were you thinking about that? Yeah, 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 you, 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 you. And this guy comes up, and he, and he says, well, you know what? It, it really was a team effort. But first and foremost, what does he say? I want to give all honor and glory and praise to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because without God, without he's the one that gave me the talents, the abilities, all of these things. Without him, I am nothing. And immediately, I'm his biggest fan, right? And I'm like, oh. Okay, kind of like Peter just putting his foot in his mouth, right? I, I feel like I just got kicked in the pants. Because I'm rooting against a child of God here. <laughs> Not cool. I'd like you to consider this quote. Every expression of creativity and beauty, every advance of science, every new composition in music, every line of poetry speaks in some measure of the creative grace of God. You may be sitting here thinking you've got nothing to offer anyone or anything, which is false. Because you are a creation of God. You are created in his image, and because of that, you have something to offer him. Now, maybe you can't play a guitar or drums or keep a beat or sing a, a, a note that anybody wants to hear. But God has gifted you in some way, shape, or form. What is that? Whatever that is, recognize it is God who has given me this gift of being able to write beautiful lyrics. It's God who has given me this gift to, to be able to have such great recall that I can become a medical surgeon. That God has gifted you in such a way that you can study a text and be able to present that in a way that makes sense. Just yield yourself to God into the work of his Holy Spirit, and watch what happens. Give God the praise and the glory for what he has done in your life. Thirdly, Cain's culmination. Verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ida and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. <laughs> Speaking in like third person here. Listen to what I say. Man, how many of you husbands, you've got something to tell your wife and you walk in and you're like, Julie, hear my voice, you wife of Chris. Listen to what I have to say. You know how she responds? She puts her book down. Oh, this must be important. You have my attention, oh husband of mine. Uh-uh, this is her. That is her. No joke, right? None of us speak to our wives like that. This tells us something just in the way he addresses his wife. It tells us something about this guy. And this is why I wore suspenders today. That's what it tells us about him, right? 
All right, continue. A little levity and then we pay attention, right? Listen to what I say. And this turns from levity to something very, very not so funny. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. He comes to his wives to gloat about killing a young man. The Hebrew word here is yiled, means child. And he killed him for just a, a mere wound. Now, the older I get, the more wounded I feel like I get. I still work with teenagers. We do activities and things. And as a man of 38 years old, I feel like I'm 18 sometimes. Think I am, don't feel like it actually. And a couple of years ago, I, I, was, I, I was thinking I'm 16 years old. We're playing an activity up in the youth room. And, and I kind of hunker down because we're moving. And then I turn and look, and what do I have happen? Caleb Hill comes burrowing down and drives right through me. I am on the floor, and I look up with blood dripping down my mouth, and then I spit out some teeth remnants. No joke, right? I was wounded, my pride more than my body, right? But I was wounded, and what did I do in response but got up and I killed him? No, no, because that That sentence would not be equal to the offense, would it? Lamech is a pretty bad dude. As we talk about Cain being a bad guy, it just gets worse. Now we have his uh, great-great-grandson, I think it is, and was, he was the first bigamist, polygamist, he was also a boastful man and a merciless and remorseless killer. I don't know if I made those last two words up or not, but you know what I mean. This section is known by some as the sword song, and it's glorified in its violence. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. His savage disposition of killing a mere child. For a mere wound is the whole point of his boast. You're gloating to me, your wives, about killing a child. Now, if you look at our culture and our society here in America, looking at the empirical evidence that there is, the 20th century is known as one of the most... Um, Excuse me, the 20th century, despite its massive advances in agribusiness, the arts, and technology, was the most violent of centuries. And I'm here to tell you, and you can see for yourself, we're a quarter of the way through the next one, and we're not much doing much better. Kinder also had this to say Lamech's song reveals the swift progress of sin. Where Cain had succumbed to sin in verse 7, Lamech is here exalting in it. Right? He's exalting in it. He's reveling in it. He's enjoying it. 
I tell you what, when I come back from a long vacation, right, and, and I get to my own bed and I get in there, the, the pillow and the sheets and stuff and just cover up, I'm just like, oh, I love my bed. Anybody been there? Pastor Mark and Amanda experienced this when they got back, right? Because they were gone in Israel, probably didn't get much good sleep with time change and accommodations, all that kind of stuff. It's just you get home and you love your bed. You just enjoy it, right? Lamech is just wrapping himself up in this sinful putridness and is just enjoying every minute of it. This is a result of sin. Sin at its finest, or should I say at its worst. We see the the terminology here, 77-fold. See, again, he's boasting that he's better than even Cain because God said to Cain that I'm going to protect you sevenfold if anybody's going to come and try to kill you, right? I will return that sevenfold. Well, apparently Lamech feels himself so much better that he not only one-ups, but quite a few ups from sevenfold to 77-fold. This is known as exponential punishment or an avalanche of vengeance. Sevenfold, which God explained or used previously, is a means of perfect measurement. It's appropriate to the crime. Jesus answered Peter's question of how many times he should forgive in Matthew chapter 18. Verses 21 to 22. And I think to some degree this is a shot at Lamech. That Lamech got it wrong. Let me clarify some things here. Jesus responds to Peter, not seven times, but 77 times you should forgive. Whereas you saw an avalanche of vengeance before, now Jesus is saying there should be an avalanche of grace. Lamech's excessive use of anger was answered by the excessive grace of Christ's forgiveness. You see, we are no longer to to, uh, condemn and punish others for their wrongs to us. We aren't to judge one another because that's God's role. Vengeance is mine, says who? The Lord. Anybody hear the Lord? I didn't think so. Me either. It's not ours to be had. It's God's. What are we then to give? You wrong me? I'm supposed to forgive you. As Jesus Christ has forgiven me. Man, that's so incredibly difficult. Because when we look around this world in which we live, we see the fingerprints of Cain everywhere. Right? We see jealousy, hatred, brutality, fear of retaliation. Restlessness, anxiety. Cain had not come to God in humble dependence of grace that day when he was supposedly worshiping. But in arrogant self-sufficiency, he came before God. It was his brother, on the other hand, Abel, that brought a lamb, and the sacrifice of the lamb brought in faith was accepted by God. 
What Abel didn't know, however, here was that there would be another lamb whose shed blood cried out to God on behalf of all mankind. And it's in this lamb that God provides his ultimate answer to Cain. The ray of hope is God's promise of a redeemer who would one day be born of the woman and conquer the serpent. So after Cain's attempt of establishing his own citizenship and civilization, the culmination of that was just an end. An end to his line because Lamech was the last of Cain. What comes next? All must be lost because now even Cain is gone. We're not going to be able to have that kind of restored some way, somehow to have hope. Abel's long gone. What's next? Well, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we see hope enter the equation. And maybe that was forgotten for a time, but, but, but not any longer. Because as we flip to verse 25 of chapter 4, the hope continues. The motif of the offspring of the woman is picked up here in Genesis 4.25 with the birth of Seth. Subsequently, the rest of Genesis, one commentary says, traces a single line of Seth's descendants, observing that it will eventually produce a king through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So within the larger biblical framework, this hope comes to fulfillment in who? Jesus Christ himself, who is clearly presented in the New Testament as an overcomer of Satan, of sin, and even death itself. Follow along with me, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife. So you think they're done having children. We go through this lineage of Cain, and that's not going to do it. So God pushes uh, uh, you know, the stop button on that. Let's go back to Adam and Eve. They had another son and called his name Seth. For she, Adam, said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. So Seth, also a son, was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So see the difference here. When, when uh, Cain was born, Eve named him Cain, which means gotten, right? I have gotten a male child from God. There's some selfishness there. Look what I've got. And now we see this, this word of faith put out there on, by Eve, recognizing that, that there's something bigger than me going on here. Here is Seth, the appointed one for God's purpose. It's from the line of Adam through Seth that Noah... The herald of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5 tells us, is born. So despite all the, the ravages of sin, it's spreading through the generations, it's violence, it's vengeance and murderous rage, the isolation, alienation and anxiety to which it leads, and the disorders and ambiguities of life in this broken world, doesn't it sound like we live in a great time right now? God, in the midst of all of that, 
can still be known. Eve still knows God. She still recognizes his work in her life and the life of mankind to come. And as Moses is writing these words uh, from, the fu- from the future of what we're reading right now, he's looking back on what has happened and writing about it. So more so than just Eve's cry of faith in verse 25, he also goes on to say in verse 26 that at this time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. People began to seek him in public worship. Living in darkness with what seems like no hope. Let's worship God together. They say light shines the brightest in the darkness, right? So the darker it seems to get, might I encourage all of us, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. When it seems as though sin had created such a vast wedge between God and man, bringing with it a sense of hopelessness, God brought a new hope that would lay the foundation of our ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. Let us find our hope, our eternal, ultimate hope in the person of Jesus Christ, the true Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of all mankind. Father, we thank you. For who you are. We thank you for your creation of us. And God, even as your perfect creation chose to rebel against you, rather than throwing us away, you sent Jesus, your one and only Son, to come, live, and die on this earth, and then be born again to provide us with this new hope. As Adam and Eve were probably thinking that there is no hope because Abel is gone, God, you saw fit to send a new child, Seth, to become new hope that points and leads to you. God, I pray for each and every one of us that are here this morning that we will look back on our lives, where we were and where we are now, and determine whether or not you're a part of our life. Because with you, no one can stand against us. But without you, we are doomed. Father, as we sing these closing words, May we leave with these true words on our lips. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Our God.